morning, uh, Grace Church of Orange. This is our last Sunday of the year, getting ready for a new year. Welcome, everybody. We want to remind you of why we meet every week and have our church. Remember that we are a Christ-centered community. We are intent on proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and sacrificially serving Jesus. So I've got a few announcements. Remember, we have our QR codes that are posted. Those are for clicking with your phone, updating your information, new phone numbers, new addresses, and even uh, asking for a place to serve here at church. So you can use the QR codes to do that. Um, children, child care is available, all three services for uh, uh, preschoolers back there in the preschool area. So don't forget that. We don't want you to miss coming to church uh, because your kids. And uh, I have a new thing coming up uh, starting next week for all of our elementary kids, our kindergarten through sixth grades. I'm going to be providing a sermon note card for our kids to take notes during the sermon. We love to see our kids worshiping together uh, with their families, and this is going to be one little thing we can do to help the kids stay focused and learn to take notes during the service. So I'll be putting out a little information video this week for, for the kids on how to take notes during the sermon. And for any of you adults, too, if you like to use this card, that'll be fine, too. Um, one last thing I wanted to announce about Operation Christmas Child. You know, we had a goal of 700 boxes, and you know that they did 902 boxes this year. And with that also came the shipping fees, yes, that they weren't expecting. So they raised this week over $8,000 for all the shipping fees. So we want to give thanks to God for um, bringing those donations in. Okay, why don't we all stand for our scripture reading? Today, I'll be reading Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt in his name. Gracious Father, we remind ourselves in prayer that we are not in control of our lives, but you are. We pray you give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we look to your word for guidance and direction. Amen. Good morning, Grace. It's a joy to see you this morning. Uh, if you're joining us from the live stream, welcome, and we're going to sing eternal praise. Thank you. 
your eyes. Put your arm around me.
standing for the reading of God's word that we believe is inerrant, inspired, infallible, and authoritative. Matthew Holbrook will be teaching today, and he'll be going through Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to chapter 4, verse 7. It's Galatians 3, 23. You can join me. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the, the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until that date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You may be seated. We'll be praying today. Our missionary highlight is Jenna Weisenberger, who's serving in the Middle East, and also for Pastor Mike, who's spending today with his family. So you can join me in prayer. Almighty Father, you are deserving of our allegiance and loyalty. We remember you are sovereign over all the universe and the earth is your footstool. You are perfect and holy and we pray to humbly come before you to sit in your presence and glean from your word the truth that you have for us today. We confess our wayward hearts and our sinful ways we need your grace to save us from ourselves. Search our hearts and our minds that you would cleanse us from our evil ways. We pray for your miraculous healing through the gift of grace and the faith to walk with you in confidence in the gift of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your gift of grace. We pray for faith in walking in your promises. We pray for your bond of love among all believers and unity in the church. We pray for those who are sick and those who are absent from our fellowship because of the COVID virus. We pray for your word of truth to penetrate our hearts and make us new transformed people. We lift up Jenna Weisenberger uh, to you for your hand directing her path as she serves you in the gospel in the Middle East and for the fruit of her labors that she would be encouraged as she depends on your provision for her. Bless Pastor Mike as he rests and, and gains strength, and bless Matthew with your Holy Spirit as he takes the responsibility of teaching us today 
out of the letter to the Galatians. Thank you for your presence and the gift of your Holy Spirit with us today. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.
God, plant your word down deep in us. Um, even today, um, I'm thinking what Pastor Mike shared on Thursday night, that we're bombarded with information uh, every day, every hour, every advertisement. We need truth um, that instead of sticking to the surface, um, drills holes into our hearts and souls and internalizes and changes the way we think and love and act and, and our destiny forever, God. Um, eternity's in, in the stakes. And so we ask for um, just for hearts that would hear you as you speak through your word and, and praise you for making us sons and daughters of the Most High. Uh, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for every person under this tent and on the live stream. We just ask you to bless the rest of our time together. Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. I'm glad to uh, be here with you this morning. Uh, one of my favorite books of all time is a, uh, an autobiography written by Greg, Luke, Greg Lucas, and the title of the book is Rustling with an Angel. And in this book, uh, Lucas describes his relationship with his son, Jake, who is severely mentally and emotionally disabled. Jake would create all kinds of chaos, disturbances, and problems. He could not effectively communicate, but he was incredibly demanding. Jake could not dress himself, feed himself, use the bathroom by himself but he was very active and very strong, and this made things difficult. And Lucas describes this overwhelming, unconditional love that he had for his son, who would never return that love. And in the middle of the book, Lucas dropped in a paragraph that made me want to throw the book across the room. It rocked my world. I couldn't believe what he just said so casually in a single paragraph after about 100 pages of describing great difficulty and pain through his son. And he says in the middle of the book, Jake was born in the neonatal intensive care unit where my wife Kim works as a registered nurse. Kim took care of Jake for the first few weeks of his life. During that time, a handwritten note was placed on his crib. The baby boy had been abandoned to social services by his birth mother. Skipping over a very long and miraculous story, we adopted Jake and brought him into our family. My reaction was, are you kidding me? He knew what they were getting themselves into and they chose to adopt this baby and to bring that kind of turmoil into their lives. And then Throughout the rest of the book, there was never another mention of Jake being adopted. His son, who had caused such heartache and misery, who had exhausted him physically and emotionally, whom Greg loved unconditionally, this son was adopted, and it didn't matter. Jake was his son. And this story highlighted the beauty of adoption. And that's what I want to look at today at the end of Galatians 3 and into Galatians 4. The beauty of adoption. And specifically, I want us to see that the adoption, that adoption in the Bible defines the church, number one. And number two, 
I want us to see that adoption defines our joy. Adoption defines the church, and adoption defines our joy. So first of all, adoption defines the church. And the three things I want to look at with regard to um, adoption defining the church is I want us to see our condition before adoption, how somebody is adopted, and then I want to see the unity in adoption. Our condition before adoption, how we are adopted, and the unity we have in adoption. So first of all, our condition before we are adopted. In Galatians chapter 3, in verse 23, it says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. We were held captive under the law. And then we have this word imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. There's going to be three metaphors that Paul uses to describe what it's like to be under the law. And the first two show up in the first two verses that we're going to look at. First being that we are in prison under the law. The law is a prison for us. The word imprison means uh, that we have been shut up. We have been cooped up. We are under restraint, uh, restraint. We have been hemmed in by the law. We are condemned by the law and therefore we're kept in this prison awaiting a death sentence. The law shows our sin and condemns us for it. And as a result, the law is a prison for us. Secondly, we keep reading here in verse 24. It says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So first of all, the law is a prison to us. And secondly, it is a guardian. Or I would want you to see that it's a harsh guardian. Your Bible may translate this, this word instead of guardian. It may say tutor in some, in some translations. But guardian is a better word. Uh, the word for tutor or a word, the word for teacher is a different, a different word in the Greek. The word guardian is a, is a reference in this culture to um, the, the father uh, would have likely many slaves. And some of the slaves would be teachers who would teach the children. But the sons would have another slave who would be assigned to them to be their guardian, to watch after them. He would be assigned to keep them from trouble, to keep the child from danger, to keep the child under control. And usually these guardians were severe disciplinarians, someone who would discipline the child harshly if the child was out of line. And so many of the boys in this Roman culture would long for the day when they would outgrow the need for their guardian, when they could step out from under their guardian. They would want to be freed from their guardian. And this is the picture that Paul gives to us. He says that the law is a guardian to us. It is a harsh disciplinarian to us. It tells us what we can and can't do and that we keep falling short and that there's consequences for falling short. It is a harsh guardian. We want to outgrow it, but we can't on our own. This is our relationship with the law, Paul says, that we're imprisoned by the law and that we're guilty under its authority, condemned on death row, awaiting ex execution, and that the law is a severe disciplinarian, an authoritarian guardian, keeping us in line through obligation, a legalistic adherence that would curtail any perceived freedoms that we might have. But then there is adoption that frees us from this prison and from this harsh guardian. We see here in verse 25, it says, but now that faith, or this, this is the way it's being used here, is faith is synonymous with the gospel. Now the gospel, or now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are sons of God through faith. 
You are sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So our condition before we are adopted is that we were in prison by the law. We were under a harsh guardian of the law. But now we come to see how we are adopted through faith. How we are adopted and we are adopted through faith. That's, that's the answer to how we are adopted. Uh, it says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now, yes, I know that the word adopted isn't, doesn't show up in these verses right here, but I promise it's coming. But it, is, it does say that we are made sons, and we will see that we are made sons through adoption here in a minute. But it says that we are made sons of God through faith. Now that faith or the gospel has come, faith is what saves us. We are saved by faith alone, not by an adherence to the law, but faith gives God the glory. If we were to seek God by the law, we would take credit for our own righteousness. But faith requires us to totally trust God alone, giving him all the credit, all the praise, all the glory for the salvation that he gives to us from what we deserve. And apart from Christ, some people try to cover over reality or mask reality by inventing superficial standards, external behaviors, rites and rituals that somehow deceive themselves into thinking that they are good enough for God. But Galatians 3, earlier in this chapter, Paul says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Those who rely on doing good are in bondage to the law. They're on death row and headed to hell. Paul goes on in chapter 3 in verse 11. He says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by what? Faith. We are saved by faith only. In chapter 2, verse 16 of Galatians, Paul writes, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. We cannot follow the law and please God. We are made sons of God through faith in Jesus. We are made sons of God through faith in Jesus. And so we put our faith in that Savior, not in ourselves. And here in Galatians 3, verse 27, Paul goes on and he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we've been immersed into Christ, clothed in Christ. We follow Christ and then we start to look like him. Our condition before we were adopted is that we were prisoners and, harsh and under harsh guardians, but we are made sons of God through faith and through faith alone. So we see our condition before adoption is that we were imprisoned and we were under a harsh guardian. And then we are made sons of God through faith. And that brings about the unity of adoption, the unity of adoption. Adoption destroys barriers in the church. Verse 28 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. All right, so stop right here for a minute. I thought that I was being smart, um, and I thought, I originally had another idea, uh, something else, another passage that I wanted to preach this morning. Um, 
and I was really anxious to preach it. But as I got into it and I thought about it, I thought, you know what? The message for that uh, passage is going to be, I think, a little too pointed, a little too sharp for the Sunday after Christmas. And I, I, I just felt like maybe that's not the most appropriate time for that particular passage. So I thought, I want to preach something that's going to be more uplifting and not super controversial or problematic or that I'm going to have to like get into all these, these difficult conversations about. I just want to preach something that's going to point people to Jesus and, and be encouraging. And so I thought, hey, you know what? This idea of adoption in Christ is so such a great concept and a great passage. And so I thought, Galatians 3 and 4, this would be wonderful to preach the Sunday after Christmas. And then we come to verse 28. And verse 28 throws us right into the hottest topic in our country today, maybe beyond coronavirus, and that is of race relations. So I didn't do very well in uh, trying to avoid the, the controversy. But Paul makes this point here, and he says, there's not Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There's not male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. There is unity in the church. Now this is talking spiritually. Obviously, there are Jews and Gentiles. There are free people and slaves. There are males and females. Um, but spiritually, we are one. There is not a distinction spiritually. There's not a distinction in value. What it's saying is that in Christ, those distinctions that relate to value are meaningless. In Christ, we are one, whether we're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We are one in Christ. And the church is defined by those who are children of God, those who are adopted into God's family, those who all claim Christ as their king, who are children of God. And in that, there are no distinctions in value. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes in verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, you who were, who were put away from the temple and outside the gates have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice that the, that the remedy is the blood of Christ. And if we have divisions within the church, we are stomping on the value of the blood of Christ. If we say that something more is needed, we are putting down the value of the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. What does that sound like? It's the same language, two becoming one in the concept of marriage. That there still are two unique, distinct individuals, but they are one in marriage. They operate as one. They are of the same value. They come together as one. And Paul is using that same language to say that's what happens with Jews and Gentiles coming together. And if we think in our country that there is a divide between any races, between white and black and Hispanic or whatever it might be, it is nothing compared to the distinctions and the barriers and the divide that was between Jews and Gentiles at this time. It was radically greater in its division and in the hostility. And Paul says that in his flesh that he creates one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The hostility has been killed. 
He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of what? Of the household of God. Why? Because you are all sons and daughters of the Most High. At the cross, Jesus killed the hostility that would divide based on any kind of human distinctions. He killed it, and it doesn't exist. And any time that we entertain, allow, anything like that to exist, then we are stomping on the cross. We are devaluing the cross. Colossians chapter 3, Paul says, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices, and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian. Barbarians were the, were the uncivilized. They were called barbarians because they didn't speak correctly, and they were said to sound like they're talking like bar, bar, bar. So they were called barbarians. And then you have the Scythians. They were like the worst of the worst of the barbarians, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. There's not Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Enemies sit together at the table of God. Greeks and Jews, slaves and free, barbarians and Scythians. They're all welcome. They all sit together at the table of God. One of my closest friends in the world is a guy by the name of Chris Wiseman. He's a doctor in the United States Army based up in Seattle. Chris is black. You may not have noticed, but I'm not. And we have been really good friends since high school. He sees a lot of things differently in the world, especially politically and socially. But he loves the Lord and he loves God's word. I love the Lord. I love God's word. Over the past year, we have spent countless hours on the phone talking and debating fighting over what is right in the world, especially with regard to race relations. But there's a couple of realities that you have to know about my relationship with Chris. One, we both totally trust the other's heart. We trust that we love the Lord, we love his word, we want to base everything in God's word, and we want to love other people. We may have some differences in how we see what we should do to go about that, but we are united on that front. And secondly, because we both love the Lord, because we both love what God's word says, we are rooted and grounded in these truths that Paul says in Galatians, in Ephesians, and in Colossians. The floor of our conversations, the ceiling of our conversation, the walls of our conversations are surrounded by the reality that ultimately only the cross is the answer. The cross is the ultimate answer to unity in the church and in the world. The gospel is the answer. Now, there may be other things that we do practically as band-aids to bridge, to bring people to the cross. And there may be differences of opinion on how we go about doing those things. But when, when we start with the point that we are going to surround our conversations around the idea that the gospel is the ultimate answer and that I know that you love the Lord and you love his word and you know that I love the Lord and I love his word, we can argue and fight and have healthy conflict over what we are to do. And the cool thing is, in these conversations I've had with Chris over the last year, we almost always end up in exactly the same place. 
We start off separated, but we keep coming back to the Bible, keep coming back to the Word, and we can start in divergent places, and we come back, and we say at the end of conversations, virtually all the time we're like, you know, we actually agree. Um, and I, I have told him many times at the end of these conversations, I wish we would have recorded this. I wish people could hear, this is how Christians are supposed to talk through these things and to work through these things. But it starts with an understanding that there are no distinctions in Christ. We have unity in the church. And we have unity because those who are in Christ have been adopted into God's family through faith. We are all part of the same family. And then in verse 29 it says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We're all heirs. There's no division within the church from human distinctions. Not by race, not by gender, not by ethnicity, not by country of origin. We are not divided by any of those things. And if that ever arises, we are to be, as Paul was to Peter in Galatians, where he confronted Peter to his face and said, Peter, this is not how the gospel works. There is to be no division in Christ. We are divided, though, by those who have faith and those who don't. Those who have faith trust the shepherd, and the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, the word of God, and they follow it. And the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, who don't want the truth of what God says. Those who have faith put their faith in all that God says, and that's what separates and nothing else. Faith is what we believe about what God says, and that faith defines us, making us children of God. So we're united around that faith. So adoption defines the church in that we are all children of God if we have faith in Jesus. Secondly, adoption defines our joy. Adoption defines our joy, and I want to look at three things here. Adoption defines our joy. We're going to look at the, the future inheritance of adoption and then the cost of adoption and then the joy of adoption. So first of all, the future inheritance of adop adoption. Again, in verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul starts by giving an illustration. He says, as long as he, the heir, is a child, he is no different than a slave. As long as he is a child, he's no different than a, than a slave. In the Jewish world, um, a, a, a boy who is an heir to his father. He can't receive his estate. He can't administer his estate. He can't actually take anything in his inheritance until he has reached maturity. The promise is waiting, but he's waiting for maturity. As long as he's a child, he's no different than a slave. Paul's using this, this as an illustration. He's no different than a slave. In fact, he's under a slave. Remember, a slave is made to be his guardian, to oversee him. The child has to answer to that slave. So he knows he has an inheritance that is coming, but he takes orders. He doesn't give them until the date set by his father. Until the date set by his father. And then Paul applies this. He says in the same way, in the same way as this illustration, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When we were children, before we had grown up into Christ, before the appointed time, before the fullness of time. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us, what? For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God predestined us for adoption. He chose us before the foundation of the world. The doctrine of election is totally tied into the doctrine of adoption. But the benefits of this adoption are not reality until the time set by the Father. And he says that when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. The, the word elementary just means in a row. So what are things that are in a row? Like A, B, C, D, like one, two, three, four. These are the basic things that you might learn in kindergarten, the elementary principles of the world. What he's referring to here is the elementary principles of the world. This would be kind of a taking a paint-by-numbers approach to pleasing God, or in other words, following the law. This is another way of saying we were enslaved to the law. We were enslaved to the law. So the th I told you there were three metaphors he used. He talks about the law imprisons us, the law is a harsh guardian to us, and the law enslaves us. We were enslaved to the law when we were children, before the appointed time. We were slaves to the law. And then that brings us to the cost of adoption. Verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And there's that word adoption. So that we might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, when God had determined, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption of sons. We were slaves, but we were redeemed. We were purchased through Jesus. This is, this is the imagery of being purchased at a, at a slave trading block. And, and Jesus, uh, or, or God comes and says, says, I want that one. And then I'm going to buy that one through the blood of my son, Jesus. And we were purchased and adopted as slaves and brought to be made to be children of God. 1 John chapter 3 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. So every Christmas for the last few years, the first thing in the morning, um, I've had a tendency to, I get up and I write a little poem tr that trying to like get my brain going as to what, what are we really doing here? What's Christmas really about? And usually nobody else gets to hear it, but unfortunately for me, I'm preaching the Sunday after Christmas. And so... I feel compelled to share with you what I wrote this Christmas, but I want you to, to, to consider that when, when we talk about Christmas, we talk about the birth of baby Jesus. We talk about God come in the flesh in the form of a baby. But we need to remember that he came for a purpose, and the purpose he came for was to purchase us with his life so that we could be adopted as children of God. So this Christmas I wrote, when you see the manger... Can you see the bloody cross? When you see the baby, can you see salvation's cost? Laying in the straw, helpless baby and all-powerful king, wrapped in one, he came to defeat death's eternal sting. Though the joy of Christmas is appropriate and good, let's not define the day simply by what we may feel. 
Rather, be sure to remember what we should. This birth was so the serpent would meet the Savior's heel. And that victory was to rescue us while we were still dead. Through this baby who came to make a cross stained red. So rejoice in the gift that is God come wearing skin. But don't lose sight of the cost he paid for your soul to win. That baby that we just celebrated, the birth, came to shed his blood to purchase us from being slaves under the law and to be made children of God, to be adopted. Jonathan Edwards said, the greatest of the misery, sorry, the greatness of the misery of hell and the greatness of the bliss of heaven is correspondent to the greatness of the things God has done to procure the one and save us from the other. God sent forth his son, born of a, woman, of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that as sons and daughters, we might be saved from hell and given an inheritance of the bliss of heaven. The cost of adoption was the life of the son of God. The highest price was paid. And then that brings us to the joy of adoption. The joy of adoption. The joy of adoption is our inheritance. Verse 6 says, And because you are sons of God, I'm sorry, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Romans 8.14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now I want you to hold that phrase in your mind. Um, come back to that. If you're, if you're taking a nap um, right now, this is a good time to, to come back. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. Just remember that phrase because I've got to cover something else first, but I want to come back to that. The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. And then verse 17 it says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are adopted to have this close, intimate relationship with God Almighty. We are way too casual with that reality. But to really understand this, we have to understand what it means to be an adopted son or daughter in the culture in which this was written. What did it mean to be an adopted son? So at this time in Roman culture, a father would want a worthy son to carry on his name, to hold his title, to inherit his estate. He would want a worthy son to do this. And the father may have two problems with this. One, he may not have any sons. Or two, he may not find any of his natural born sons to be worthy. So what would a father do? He would look around at other families and he would say, yeah, here is a son, here is a boy, and I can see his character and his talent. I can see his virtue. And he would be a worthy son to inherit my estate, to carry on my name, to, to have my title. This would be a worthy son. And so he would adopt a son who would then take precedence over his natural born sons. His natural born sons who wouldn't qualify for the level that the father had established. 
And an adopted son in this system would be a son who would be chosen by the father for the purpose of inheriting an estate and bearing the name of the father. And it is in this context that Paul says that we are adopted to inherit the estate of the father, to carry on his name. We are the, the chosen of God by his choice to bear his name and to inherit his kingdom. And in Roman culture, there was something called patria potestas, which meant the rule of the father, the rule of the father. And this meant that as long as you were um, the son of your father, your father had total control over you. Your father could disown you. Your father could kill you. Your father could do anything he wanted to do with you. He controlled everything about you. So if a father saw a son in another, in another family and he said, yeah, that's the son I want to adopt, he couldn't go to the son and say, hey, kid, look at all this estate that I have. You want me to adopt you and you can inherit all of this? No, he'd have to go to the son's father who had complete control over him. And he'd have to negotiate a price to be paid to buy the son and to be able to adopt that son. And the price he would have to pay would be a very high price. We are children of the devil in John chapter 8, before Christ. That's who owns us. And Jesus paid the price to purchase us from under the law so that we could be into the family of God and adopted by the Father. Four things resulted from an adoption in this case. If a father adopted a son, the son would lose all relationship with his previous family. Everything was gone, and he would gain all the rights of the new family. He would become an heir to all of the father's estate. Even if there were other children who were, who were natural children, who were blood-born children, it didn't affect his rights. He was inalienably the co-heir with them, and sometimes would even exceed the natural-born children's rights if the father so chose and according to Roman law, the former life of the adopted person was completely wiped out, including all legal debts. It was as if they had been born again, that they had been born new the moment that they were adopted. They had no debts. When you come to faith in Christ Jesus and you're adopted into the family of God, all of your debts are canceled. You, are a, you have been born anew. You have become a co-heir of all that the born son, Jesus, possesses. The adopted person is literally and absolutely the son of his new father. It was irrevocable. A father who adopted a son in this culture could not disown his adopted son. He could disown his natural born sons, but he could not disown an adopted son. He could not kill his adopted son. He could kill his natural-born sons. It was totally and completely a done deal in this adoption. And the same is true. When God adopts us into his family, he has paid the ultimate price, the life of his son, and we are forever irrevocably belonging to him. There are two pictures of salvation in Scripture. There's, there's adoption, and there's new birth or regeneration, being born again. These are two ways of looking at how God brings people into his family. Adoption gives us the title to the inheritance, and regeneration gives us the nature of 
being sons of the Father and gives us the fitness for that inheritance. Both are important, but the point of the passage today is the reality of our adoption. And I want to show you one more thing about adoption. Back in Romans 8, verse 16, I told you to remember this phrase. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit bears witness that with our spirit that we are children of God. In the Roman adoption system, there was required, there was a like, ceremony where a final verdict was proclaimed that this child has been adopted by this family and there would have to be seven witnesses. This was so that in the event that the father died and the adopted child claimed his inheritance, the other children couldn't say, no, 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 he was never adopted and cut him out of the inheritance. But no, there would be seven witnesses to stand up and say, no, this guy, I was there. I was there and I saw him be adopted. And here we have in Romans 8, it says the spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When we come to the point where we're wondering, am I adopted? Have I, do I really belong to God? The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, bringing about conviction, bringing about the desire for repentance, bringing about the longing for Christ, bringing about, as Paul says in Romans 7, the wanting to want in the work of the spirit in us bears witness to us that we are adopted, that we are children of God. Seven witnesses were required in Roman culture. Is it just a coincidence that we have this passage in Isaiah 11 that says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And here's the description of the Holy Spirit. And the spirit of the Lord, one, shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom, two, and understanding, three. The spirit of counsel, four, and might, five. The spirit of knowledge, six, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord, seven. There's a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not, but the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And there's a sevenfold description of the Holy Spirit in Roman times. Seven witnesses were required to testify about the adoption of a son. So we are adopted to have an inheritance. And the hope of this inheritance in the future is the source of great joy today. First Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We just sang a song where the bridge says, where else can we go, Lord? Where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. He is the bread of life. He is the life and the light. Jesus is our life. We have been adopted by faith in Jesus. Jesus is our life. We are not under the law. We are not imprisoned. We are not under a harsh guardian. We are not a slave. We are under 
love. Jesus is our life. We are adopted as children of the king. We were redeemed with the greatest price that has ever been paid. Jesus is our life. We have an inheritance from the king, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept and guarded by God. Jesus is our life. And so we love because he first loved us. We love him and so we follow him and obey him and worship him, not out of obligation to the law, but because we love him for who he is and what he's done. Jesus is our life. And we love each other. And we especially love the little Christs, the Christians, the church. And when we do that, we love Christ. We don't allow any barriers or distinctions or obstacles to come between us. Jesus is our life. And we anxiously wait with all of creation for the return of our King when we reign and live with him forever in the greatest and the fullest joy. Why? Because Jesus is our life. Lord, thank you so much for this reality of adoption. God, that you have adopted us and you have brought us together in this body, in this church, where you have given us unity because we are all children of the King who put faith in Jesus Christ. God, thank you for that unity that you give to us Thank you for the joy that you give to us with the inheritance that we have that is imperishable and undefiled and kept in heaven that won't fade. God, this inheritance that we get to have eternal joy in Jesus. God, help us to pursue Jesus, to love him, to honor him, to worship him because we do love him and not out of an obligation to the law. Thank you for saving us and rescuing us from the burden of the law. God, may we understand this more today and live more fully for you as a result. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand and join us as we close singing Christ our hope in life and death?
Necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I pray that you would know that joy inexpressible today. Amen.